Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good evening again. Um, for those of you all who I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm a pastor here at Advent. And um, if you were a little late in arrival, you might be wondering, okay, what's going on here? Uh, there's not a lot of joyful noise uh, being made and things along those lines. And um, we're wanting to do a service of lament uh, this evening. One, because um, there's lots and there's always opportunities and things to lament, um, whether in our own personal life or whatever's happening in the world. But we want it to be instructive, instructive to our faith of what does it actually look like and what is it, how do we faithfully bring our emotions before the Lord? Um, and so this evening we're trying to, to actually. Um, orchestrate the whole order of service to look much like the psalms that we've read this evening. Um, to be honest, um, there, there's almost this like you-like shape in all psalms of lament. You, you bring an honest uh, uh, claim before the Lord. It seems to descend further and further as we get more and more honest. But then that honesty actually turns toward hope in the God who promises um, to renew and re remake all things. And so that is the order of, of, of our service uh, this evening, um, lest you wonder exactly what it is that we are doing uh, tonight. But one of the things that, that we are changing is uh, the sermon text. We're actually not going to be doing Psalm 28. We're instead going to do Psalm 43. Um, the, the reasons for this is mainly... Um, I felt like it was only right and good um, to do a psalm of lament through the one that I pray the most, um, the one that I uh, actually prayed most of my time throughout seminary, um, because seminary was kind of a, a challenging time for me and for our family, and um, and so uh, it's it can be instructive for all of us um, that it's something that um, that we have thought through. So it's going to be up on the screen, uh, Psalm 43, or if you have a Bible as well, um, I will uh, read it. Um, for us. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As we consider God's word together this evening, would you all pray with me? Father, we... Well, we thank you for the psalmist's words here. And as we consider why at times our soul is cast down, whether that's true of all of us or just some of us this evening, I pray that we would, um, that we would turn toward you with, with true and real hope, that we might hope in you and again praise you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, 
my Christian faith didn't really become my own until I was in high school. Um, and most of that time, I would say, was wonderful. I had a great Christian mentor. I was really involved in young life in high school. Um, so my young life leader was really a, a kind of a spiritual father for me. Um, I had wonderful and encouraging friends uh, during that time, and, and my family belonged um, to, to a gospel-believing and gospel-proclaiming church. Um, and so I was really growing in my faith throughout most of my high school experience. But I say all that to say that my, while my high school experience was incredibly good to me throughout my, my kind of faith journey, it, it also was marked by two of the greatest American tragedies, um, kind of bookmarked, so to speak. Um, my freshman year of high school, I was in a Spanish class when all of a sudden um, someone ran in to tell us about uh, two high school kids who'd come into a high school in Colorado and opened fire on a bunch of classmates. Um, Columbine High School was the very first tragic, um, uh, what I forget the word we call it, the active shooter situation that we'd ever encountered when I was in school. And so um, it was all that any of us could talk about uh, for the next couple of days. And I didn't really know how to respond. My only Christian thought was to pray for the Christian or to pray for the families that had been involved, which was a right and good response. But I didn't know how to make sense of what I was feeling. Um, I also didn't know how and what to do with my grief. So my grief seemed to last about as long as the news cycle. After a short period of time, the, the shock wore off and. I returned to my comparatively um, carefree experience in high school. Well, my senior year, I was in uh, the student center of our high school uh, for a Bible study before school um, when all of a sudden someone ran in to say a plane had run into a building. And that's about all we knew at that point in time. We thought, okay, this is like a single jet propeller plane. I think those are oxymorons. But a, a single, a small plane had run into a building. And so we thought, okay, well, we're going to pray for the pilot and we're going to pray for uh, those who were in the building because that's all we thought. And then we went about our day until 30 minutes later, someone ran in to say another plane had hit another building. And we at that time knew that it was not an accident. And so everybody gathered around a television, and we happened to be watching live as the second tower fell. And we didn't know what to do with our horror, with our shock. <laughs> we were scared. We were upset. I didn't know how to process what I was going through with the Lord. I've been taught that as a Christian, I should be ready to at all times give a reason for the hope that I have in Christ Right? And it seemed like the best way to do that was to smile. No matter what the circumstances were, be happy. Right? I, t I turned kind of Nat King Cole's uh, theology from, you know, from his song, Smile, into my very way of being. He says, light up your face with gladness, hide every ounce of sadness. Right? Smile, because what's the use in crying? Right? I didn't have an understanding of a Christian response of lament. I believe that being a Christian meant being as happy as you can be, being happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. I didn't understand 
that you can actually still worship and rejoice in the Lord while lamenting. See, lament is relational language. It's the language that we use before our God and we do so together. Because to live a life of faith in a fallen world, of course, means that we're going to struggle at times. Of course, we're not going to be able to smile at all times. So in our moments of grief and pain, we are supposed to pray our hearts before the Lord as we do in moments of gladness and in moments of thanksgiving. We're supposed to pray all of that before the Lord. And so this evening, I want to walk down a path of lament some of you all may have an easier time this evening doing that than others. Um, I know specifically that many of us are going through very real seasons of lament right now. Um, even things that, that, that Matt was praying about beforehand, loss and family. Maybe it's on a bigger scale that things that you have been going through. But for others of us, it may feel strange. It may feel strange to lament. You've never allowed yourself to go there before. Or maybe you walked in here tonight feeling really glad, and now this is the bummer of all bummers, right? And so if that's you, I get it. But I want to invite for us as a body to think about what does it mean to grieve together, to come alongside someone else who's grieving, and to be honest before the Lord for them as well. Not so that we can wallow in our sadness, but so that we can name our sadness, so we can bring it before the Lord, and we can trust that He's going to do something about it. So that we can love and care for our brothers and sisters who are going through something, who are suffering and grieving by joining them in it. And I think that we will accomplish this with actually a renewed sense of hope and joy, perhaps even more than you walked in here with. So this evening, I want to look at Psalm 43. Right, the author of, of this psalm, uh, this is actually, historically, was always um, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were actually one psalm. I don't exactly know why they got split apart, um, but we did Psalm 43 because it's short. It's easy to memorize, and if you're looking for a psalm of lament to memorize, this is the place to start. But... Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together are referring to the author as being in exile. They, 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 the author has been in exile, and that's the reason that he's writing this particular psalm. He, he's separated from his people and from God, and he has no means to be able to get back to them. We don't exactly know what it is that's caused this separation, but we can identify with it, Right? We see that the psalmist is despairing, but despite his depression, there is real hope. We see this evening as we look together chiefly at the verses of Psalm 43 that, that this poem is telling us a threefold story. That despair causes us to feel separation from God. That connection is only, only repaired by God himself. And third, that he actually gives us hope for a restored life. So let's look at that threefold story together. First, despair. Despair causes us to feel separation from God. At the beginning of Psalm 43, we learn a couple things about the author. First, he's praying to the Lord and that the Lord will intercede for him. He says, plead my cause, O God. Right? He's been unjustly treated. 
And from the context of the previous psalm, Psalm 42, we, we learn that he actually feels forgotten by God. His despair and his sorrow have reached this great depth such that he's asking for God, um, for God himself to intercede. And it may seem like the psalmist is accusing God, right? or it may seem like, um, like he's kind of approaching God a little bit too boldly. I know I've often thought, um, is it proper and right uh, to give our God a command like this? Aren't we supposed to, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding? Right? Isn't it a lack of faith that would cause someone to bring a command like this before the Lord? At least that's what I, I think a lot of the time. No. Actually, the psalmist demonstrates his faith by even approaching the Lord for help, for vindication. Right? By merely calling out to the Lord for help, the psalmist actually demonstrates his faith in the Lord. He expects that God will act. He knows that God actually has the power to do something about what he's bringing before him. And he approaches the Lord knowing that he longs to hear from his people. Second, we see, we see here what is causing him to call out to the Lord for help. Right, the psalmist is being oppressed by his surroundings. Um, he asks that God would defend his cause against an unjust and ungodly people. Right, those who are near to him and who are oppressing him. The terminology he uses to refer to these ungodly people makes it clear that he's actually oppressed by, by a non-Jewish people, uh, by a foreign people. And that means that as, when we take the exile into account, that he is in a foreign land being surrounded by a people who worship a foreign god. And we too live in exile. We are living in a foreign land. Right? We often say that we have our citizenship in heaven despite the fact that we live here on earth. And so we are living in a foreign land and we struggle in the same way that the psalmist is struggling here. And so at the very least, the psalmist doesn't, doesn't feel God's presence here, right? He's absent from the presence of those who love God and he's absent from the presence of God himself. But his separation is greater than that. He may have experienced grave injustices at their hands. He may, he may have been, been on the receiving end of evil deeds done by them. And in his distress, he longs for God to act. And he cries out to him. But even in his despair, the psalmist here finds hope. Because in verse 2, the psalmist begins to turn towards hope. He seems to have already worked his way through the sorrow that he's expressed. He says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. But even as he articulates his hope and faith in God, he asks the question that we have all thought at times. He says, why have you rejected me? And pay attention, because this question is not a theological question. Of course, because the, the biblical answer to that question would be that he hasn't rejected the psalmist here, right? Um, God has not rejected us. The question that's being posed here is an emotional question, right? The author, based on his circumstances, feels cast away from the Lord. He feels rejected. He feels distant from God. 
And so oftentimes as Christians, or as those, maybe even this evening, if you're not a Christian, for those who are seeking to know who God is, how often are we quick to shut down those types of feelings and those types of thoughts? For many of you, the day-to-day actions of life have caused you to feel distant from God. Right? And if you weren't already feeling it and haven't already feeling it, I would imagine that the circumstances of at least the last couple of years have made us feel a little bit more distant. Right? Perhaps that distance has come from like one massive event that has happened in your life, or maybe it's been a little bit more like death from a thousand paper cuts. No matter if it's one big thing or a bunch of little things, when we are distant from God, we can either have one of two reactions to it that are negative. We can either turn away from him and his people, or we can pretend like none of it is real and pretend like none of it is something that we're actually going through, that our sadness isn't there to begin with. And for those of you who often deal with these emotions by trying to avoid God and his people, um, let me begin by saying I'm really glad that y'all are here this evening. I would imagine that it isn't very easy uh, for you to to be in a place like this, and I would imagine that... um, I would imagine it isn't a lot of us, but if that is you, I'm not asking for you to stop feeling those pains. I'm not asking for you to stop feeling those negative feelings. What I'm asking you to do is quite the opposite. I'm asking you to acknowledge your emotions before the Lord, to do what the psalmist is doing here. You most likely have every reason to be angry or sad or struggling. There are many things in this world that bring about despair. But when you try to avoid God and his people, you're actually placing yourself in exile, right? You're choosing to be like the Israelites, wandering, wandering throughout the wilderness, but just without the pillar of fire leading you anywhere. You're stuck. So I'm glad that you're here and please keep listening as we walk through the psalm together. But for those of you who often respond by pretending that your anger or your sadness isn't there, um... I get you, right? That is very much my own mentality. And so I'm asking for us to just acknowledge it. Sometimes we want to pretend that we aren't, that we aren't upset because we think that it isn't the theologically accurate response. Um, we try to combat our anger and our emotions with doctrinal truths like, well, I know I'm really struggling right now, but God is love. Or, I know that things are really bad in this world right now, but God will never leave me or forsake me. And by glossing over our anger or our sadness, and by simply repeating these truths over and over again, we're actually keeping God at bay. We're stiff-arming him a little bit. For example, let's say... Um, I were to go home and I am struggling with something that's happened in my relationship with my wife. We've never, ever had a fight, so don't worry about it. Um, no, uh, I, don't, I don't wonder in the midst of, uh, of relational strife, I don't repeat back to myself, well, Juliana has promised to love me in sickness and in health. Right? She has done that. That is a truth. But if I were to uh, just merely repeat that, and not actually tell her what's going on, I'm keeping her at bay. I'm not allowing for our relationship to grow through that struggle. So what should I do instead? No, I should bring up the very issue that has brought me to that place of despair. I should bring the truth before her. And as we do so, our relationship is healed and actually grows deeper. Deeper. 
One marital psychologist said that it's never engaging a conflict that brings about an end to a relationship. No, it's actually avoiding the conflict that might. Right? And if we are to be in relationship with God, then we cannot gloss over our hurt, our doubts, or our loneliness. We must bring it all before him. It's not only appropriate, it's actually necessary to bring our frustrations, our hurts, and our doubts to him. Because he can handle it. And that's part of the reason why the Psalms are given to us. He can handle it and he's giving us the language that we need to feel close to him. But like any good relational conversation, we cannot simply stop after we've listed our frustrations. We have to go on from there. Right? The, the conversation must end in intimacy. And so secondly, as our conversation with God continues, we see that the connection with God is repaired only by him. In verse 3, the psalmist petitions God to help. He asks for God to bring him out of the foreign land and into his very presence. He asks that God would send out his light and his truth. And while these words can seem to be merely characteristics of God, like God is light or God is truth, the phrase here is actually a poetic way of asking for a personal God to intercede in a personal way. He's asking for God to send a heavenly aid. And it's not merely the good qualities of God that brings us back from our place of exile. Instead, it's someone or something that displays these qualities that brings us back to presence with him. The psalmist is asking for real action from a real person to end his suffering. Someone who displays the characteristics of God's truth and God's light. But it's not just the end of oppression that the psalmist is seeking. Right? The psalmist asks that this person would lead him to God's presence. The psalmist doesn't merely want absence from the bad. He wants presence with the good. He wants to be near God. In fact, he wants to be so close to God that the holy hill isn't good enough. That Jerusalem isn't good enough. That the temple isn't good enough. That he needs to be where the Lord is right by his very altar. To be as close to him as he possibly can be. In verse 4, he even begins to dream about that type of closeness. He can't wait to sing and to dance before the Lord. So the story of the psalm is moved from crying out to God because he's far, far away from him to dreaming about this future joy when he will be so close to him that he will be able to dance very before him. Do you long for that type of intimacy with God? You desire to be so close to him that all of the other cares that you are thinking about, that you are going through, that they pale in comparison. Or if you're struggling with God, as we talked about earlier, perhaps, perhaps this idea feels a little bit too fast. And I get that. But maybe you still have that longing. Maybe you long for God to make things in this world right. Or you, you hope to believe that one day you could come and be this close to the Lord. Maybe you desire that God would send out his light and his truth. And the beauty is that God has done just that. He has sent out his light and his truth. Because Jesus is that very light. Jesus is that very truth. 
This psalm is not merely a suggestion or a hope that God can act. It's, it points to the, toward the very fact that Jesus and God himself has acted. God has sent his light and his truth to lead us to his very presence. He sent Jesus to, to bring us to his presence or to his temple. Right? He has met us where we are. He's met us in our despair. He's met us in our sadness. He's met us in our happiness. But God has made his way towards you and towards me. And so we're brought near to him by him. He has brought us to the presence of God because the presence of God has come down to be with us. But you might be thinking, well, where is Jesus now? I, I don't feel his presence now. How can it be true that we are near to him? He is not physically present with me. You're right. But he has sent his spirit to be with us. And in fact, if you are a Christian, then the Bible says that your very body is now the temple. Right? That's not a truth to be repeated in order to, to tell us not to drink or, or smoke or get a, get a tattoo. Right? Talk to your parents if you want to do those things. That's not the point of that verse. The point of the verse is to say that God is so close to you that your very body is now indwelt by the one who spoke all things into being. That's how close you are to the Lord. We are led back to God by God. And we are also led back toward reconciled relationships with each other by him as well. We're able to move from this place of sadness and exile to a place of longing and hope because of what he has done for us. Because he has sent out his light and his truth. Because he leads us back to presence with him. He has acted in our relationship with him and in our relationship with each other. So let's look at the third part of the story. That God gives us a renewed hope for a restored life. By the end of the psalm, the author has gone through this journey. Right? He's moved from doubt and sadness to one of expectation of restoration and hope. He asks himself the same question that he's been asking Throughout all of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? It's also something that Jesus himself has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane as the weight of going to the cross was upon him. Jesus says that his soul is sorrowful. Right? He, he's taken on all that we know. And he's even taken on our own sorrow. It's in, it's in Jesus Christ that our sorrow actually begins to find meaning. It's in Christ that our despair finds hope. Because he's taken it all on. And he's bringing redemption through it. He didn't just live a righteous life. But he also lived a life where he can and he does identify with every struggle that we are going through. Every pain, every grief, every sorrow. We know that although Jesus' sorrow was severe, it was also redemptive. He didn't merely take on our emotions. He took on our sin. He was sorrowful unto death so that we might be shown the way, the truth, and the life. So that we might be brought back to God by God, by the very light of the world. So that we might, as a people, be united to him and be united to one another. Be united to the very temple of God. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that this psalm gives us hope. 
right? We no longer have to ask the open-ended question that the psalmist is asking here, right? Why are you, why are you um, cast down, O my soul? Instead, we can ask it with a true and a real hope that we have in Christ. A hope that, yes, our soul is cast down, but our Lord is doing something about it. A real and a genuine hope. And y'all, hope is not just um, a word to be thrown around uh, in Christian subculture, kind of like a Disney movie. Hope has real theological meaning. It doesn't just mean that, like, I hope that tomorrow the U.S. men's national team beats Wales in the World Cup. I, I do genuinely hope it, but I have no idea if that's actually going to happen, right? That's the way we often use the word hope in our culture. Now, the biblical definition of hope is something much different. It's an anticipation of something that is certain. It's an anticipation of something that is certain. And so, in a sense, it would be like watching the World Cup game tomorrow, knowing that every single time Wales somehow gets a goal, that every up and every down of the game, no matter what happens, that that game is going to be over with the U.S. winning. That is what biblical hope is. That is that type of certainty. That no matter what we are going through in this world, no matter the ups, no matter the downs, no matter how deep in our sorrow we get, we know that at the end, our Lord wins. It's not merely a wish. It's a hope in God's willingness to act and knowledge that he will act in the future. So today, let me encourage you, with each new disaster that seems to overtake our world, God has not abandoned you. With every death of a loved one that you've experienced in the last few years, or maybe you've experienced recently, God has not abandoned you. With every broken relationship that you're going through, whether it be um, with, a, with a spouse, whether it be with, with a child, whether it be with a parent, whether it be with a sibling, God has not abandoned you in that broken relationship. And maybe it is that you're feeling just immensely lonely and have been. And, and the season of COVID that we're going through has just made it worse and worse and worse. In that loneliness, God has not abandoned you. We've all felt separated from God. And we can all talk about it together. Right? You're not alone, no matter how lonely you might feel in your grief and in your lament. Or no matter how upset you are with God, my urge to you this evening is to pray to him. To pray those very feelings before him. Pray as the psalmist prays here. Bring all of your heart to him and work through that pain in faith knowing that he is the one who delights to hear and he's the one who's doing something about it. Call on him to act. And as you do so, remind yourself that he has acted before and he will act again. Hope in God, the psalmist says. Right? The psalmist has not been delivered to the presence of God yet, but he knows without a doubt that he will ultimately be there. If you are a Christian, then you are currently waiting with that same anticipation and that, with that same hope. Yes, we still deal daily with depression. We still deal daily with anxiety, with death, with loneliness, with tragedy. But God has not abandoned us because you are in Christ if you are a Christian and he is near. Be renewed in hope 
Put your hope in the God who has come and who will come again. Because we too, like the psalmist, we will. One day in the future, we will dance and we will sing and we will feast with him when that day comes. When he will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. Would you all pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, that in him and by him, you have taken um, our very mourning. And Lord, maybe it right now is not, uh, it hasn't been put into dancing yet. But Lord God, we do know that one day it will. And because of what Jesus has come uh, to do and what he will ultimately come to do in the future, Father, we know we have a hope that is secure. And so, Father, I pray for all of us this evening that we would bring our very um, real struggles before you. That we wouldn't pretend that they aren't that they aren't real. That we wouldn't keep you at a distance. But, Lord, that even this evening we would um, take a very opportunity to be open and honest before you. And may our relationship with you be strengthened. That we might feel the true and real joy that comes from knowing that you... Um, that in Christ, we are now made into your very temple. That we are now that close with you. And so, Father, I pray all of this in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.